My guest for this episode is Doug Lamov, author of Teach Like a Champion and Reading Reconsidered, and a senior figure at the US charter school chain on Common Schools. Thank you for joining me, Doug. Um, so you're increasingly cited in UK schools now for um, various aspects of your Teach Like a Champion uh, book and your subsequent books after that, in fact. Uh, but for those who don't necessarily know you or haven't uh, got a full uh, understanding of, of, of your philosophy, do you want to just outline you know, what the aim of your work is and what you're trying to achieve? Sure, thanks for asking. I think my philosophy is first and foremost that teachers, especially the best teachers, are outstanding problem solvers. Mm. Classroom environments are incredibly challenging. Ensuring student achievement for, uh, for all students is challenging, but especially for, for kids who don't come from backgrounds of privilege, kids who uh, face you know, learning difficulties uh, in their lives, in the communities that they come from, they, you know, they, uh, it's a hard, hard job. And traditionally, um, teachers get advice from people who are outside the daily practice of the classroom because we haven't really had the ability to think methodically about measuring what, what learning is. Uh, a lot of the advice traditionally been ideologically driven, and so my goal is just to study, is to identify high-performing teachers and study them and describe what they do, and then share that back out to, to other teachers so teachers can learn from teachers. But the core idea to me is teachers are incredible problem solvers. They're some of the smartest, most important people in our society, and we should be studying them to decide and learn what teachers should do. Mm. And one of the things you've identified and perhaps you become best known for, especially in the UK, is is the use of sort of learning routines. Um, yeah. In in the UK, I mean, most teachers would say they have certain uh, methods they mm-hmm. use or certain quirks to their teaching to to get a child to be engaged. But increasingly, teachers here are adopting the ones that you've identified. What do you think mm-hmm. makes the routines you've seen have a connection to teachers? And are these routines you've identified from this, these observations of high performing teachers? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes people say your routines, but really I don't, I don't think of them as my routines. I think of myself as describing the routines that I see consistently in high-performing classrooms. I think they resonate with teachers because, um, to just go back to that, you know, teaching can be really difficult, and uh, teaching effectively is a combination of the sublime and the mundane, and that those two aren't opposite. Those, those two ideas sublime and mundane are not opposites but they're synergistic and so in order to be able to have a deep conversation about the causes of the american civil war with all students attentive i need to i need to maximize my time so i don't spend 15 minutes 10 10 minutes starting the the lesson i need to make sure that students understand uh when it's okay to speak an idea out loud and when it's not okay to interrupt uh and so if I want to ask a question and let students think about it and give them a minute of wait time before I take an answer, which is a really important instructional strategy. I can't do that if, if pupils are calling out answers in my classroom. And so I have to have a routine for uh, what the expected means of participation is for students. Uh, so I, I think that oftentimes our most rigorous intentions in the classrooms are undone by a lack of attention to the, the mundane details of how things should go right. A book that I, I really love, Ronald Morse's book, with all due respect, defines discipline as teaching students the right way to do something. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, uh, A, something that's critically important in the classroom and something that we often overlook. And, and one of the results is we get angry at students because we say, we say to them, pay attention, and then 
they don't do what we think we asked them to do. And we say, I thought I told you to pay attention, and we shout at them, when in fact it's not altogether clear that anyone has ever taught them what does it mean to pay attention in the classroom. It means you look at the person who's talking to you, and you sit up in a relatively attentive way so that you show that you're paying attention, uh, and you take notes when important things are being discussed and talked about. Uh, and so those, ha those habits of discipline, uh, knowing the right way to do something, are critical to all the more sublime educational outcomes that we seek. A colleague that I, I really admire here in the U.S., uh, Doug McCurry, has this great phrase, which is, if students aren't doing what you've asked them to do, the most likely reason is that you haven't taught them how. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? And I guess with with uh, with teachers who don't perhaps know these routines, they, they would say, you know, are these routines you've adopted from individual teachers? Is this a sort of summary of the routines you've seen from these high-performing teachers, a sort of, you know, a, a best version of a, a number yeah. of different routines, and you've honed them into, you know, a single strategy? Or how is that, how is that process work? Yeah. I've chosen a few routines that I think are especially powerful and tried to emphasize the idea that what great teachers do is Anything that occurs frequently, frequently or regularly in the classroom, you should know what the right answer looks like, and you should teach your students how to do it right. You should make a habit out of it so that a students can do it. You can things you do consistently, students should know how to do well, and b so that they become uh, they don't become a drag on learning. So you can do them as efficiently as possible and spend as much time as possible on the content of learning, mm -hmm. um, and finally so that they can almost become sort of a uh, then ritual, which is I do this and it reminds me that I'm getting ready to learn and immerse myself in learning. And so it actually has um, a focusing effect on many students. So I think the overall idea is I think great teachers do far more routinize far more things than what I describe in the book. I try to choose some important routines that are often that represent often pain points for teachers and describe what they look like in high performing classrooms with the understanding and the hope that when teachers start to see the power of having a right answer for those things, teaching students the right way to do them, that they will then find other things to routinize in their classroom to make and make common procedures out of it. It's interesting. I think one of, the one of the most misunderstood things about it is that um, I think people presume that I'm only talking about behavioral routines, but in fact I think academic routines are at least as important, probably more important. Um, there's a video that I like to show at my workshops of a teacher named Jessica Bracey. She's, uh, she's teaching uh, fifth grade reading at a school in Newark, New Jersey, right? And every kid is incredibly wrapped up in her lesson. They're reading the book, and she says, pause, close your books, question, answer, answer question number 87 in your reading response journal. Uh, why is this character doing what she's doing? Uh, what's her purpose? Go. And within three seconds of her saying that, every single kid in the, in the classroom is writing complete sentences, reflecting on this moment in the book with real passion and buy-in. And so I think it's a great case of a routine. It's question 80, it's the 87th time that they have gone from reading a book instantly into their reader response journals. Uh, and so the more you do it, the more you do it in the same way, the more there's always the same place that you go to write. Uh, you always write in the same way. The fewer questions you have, the better you are at doing it. And so that's why she's able to do it in three seconds instead of 30 seconds or a minute of a pupil saying, I don't have a pencil. Wait, where are we supposed to write this? What are we supposed to write it? Right. So she solved all those problems and the kids can do it well. And not only does she benefit from not wasting time on this, but because the transition from reading to writing is so fluid, the ideas that the students have while they're reading are still live in their minds. They're not, they're not distracted by the search for a pencil, et cetera. And so they move right into, right into deep and reflective writing 
um, with real efficiency and productivity. So one of the things like, that struck me when um, yeah. I was I came to one of your training sessions was that you were very uh, open. You said, right, here's four videos of, of teachers. And each of those videos was incredibly different in their style. And I, I think one of the misconceptions perhaps about routines and especially, you know, some of your work is that people think it, it denotes a certain style of teaching. Well, actually, you had four very, very different teachers in, in those videos and different approaches, but they all used routines perhaps um, the best way to put it is in, in, their own, in their own way, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. That's very important to me. I think I do try to describe in fairly specific detail the tools that I see teachers using, but they're tools. Mm. And so uh, I think it's a misreading of it, sometimes deliberate and sometimes accidental, that saying that there are a set of tools is the same as saying there's a formula. Of course, there is no formula for teaching. And uh, only a fool holds a hammer and thinks that everything is a nail. Yeah. But in addition to them, you know, like, if you're a craftsman, you have a box of tools and you select the right tool and how to use it in a given situation. But then each craftsman is different and has a different approach to how they, um, how they use a paintbrush. And so when we do workshops, I try to show two or three, four examples of different teachers using a different technique. And the idea is the only way this works is if it is spoken in your own personal vernacular as a teacher, uh, you sound like you doing it, you adapt it to your own style. Of course, not everyone does it the same. And uh, you know, there may even be techniques that are just not right for you. Um, there are certainly techniques in the book that I, when I teach and when I have taught yet, I use far less than other ones because they're less me as a teacher. And so my hope is certainly that teachers will both choose the tools that most serve their needs at any given time, but then adapt them to their own personal style. Mm. Do you think? Um, do you want? Do you want to run through maybe a couple of the the routines so people have a good idea about you know what we're talking about when we're talking about routines? Sure. Maybe I'll start with um, one of my favorites, which is called habits of discussion, and this is a series of routines for what students should be doing if you want to have a class discussion. And it starts with some very mundane things that people often chafe against. The first one is what I would call tracking which is the expectation, it's a routine that whoever is talking in the classroom, we look at them and we give them eye contact. Right? So if the teacher is talking, the teacher might start by installing this routine on the first day by saying, track me, right? Um, we're gonna be reading some outstanding books this year and, uh, but she would start by reminding students, whenever I'm talking at the front, you should be looking at me, right? And then she would call on a student and say, uh, uh, tell me a book that you read last year that you loved and what you loved about it Jaquan. And then she explains to students, when Jaquan answers, everyone should turn and look at Jaquan. Because what we're doing is we're saying, I care what you're saying. It matters to me, and I'm engaged in what you're saying. No one says something that is risky, thought-provoking, uh, revealing of their own true thoughts in a room where they think everyone is ignoring them. And so if everyone's looking in some other direction and aren't reinforcing for Jaquan, your words matter to me. Over time, he won't share his most powerful thoughts. So that's the first step is just this idea of like we look at each other to show that we're locked into the discussion and the discussion matters to us. It also has the beneficial effect of helping students to concentrate better and listen better. You do listen better to someone who you're looking at generally. One of the things I notice about discussions uh, is that often what we call a discussion is just a series of people talking aloud in sequence and people actually aren't listening. You know, uh, 
if all you have is talking and no one listening, you have the American political process. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or Twitter, in fact, just, <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so discussion is supposed to be as much about listening as talking. So it's as important the routines that I do for listening are as important as the routines I do for talking. So the next step is, first, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you to remind you that while you're talking, I'm supposed to be listening. And that means the, other, the second step in the routine is I put my hand down. Because if my hand is up in the air while you're talking during a discussion, what I'm saying is I'm not listening to what you're saying. I'm trying to think about what I wanted to say. But you got called on instead, so I'm going to ignore what you said. And then when you're done, I'm going to say, but what I wanted to say is, which is another way of saying I wasn't listening to what you were saying. So that second part of the routine is we put our hands up when we want to speak and we put our hands down when someone else is talking. And then the third part of the routine, uh, the habits of discussion part, is I teach students phrases that they can use that signify ways of thinking that are building off someone else. So if what I want students to do is, rather than just make a series of disconnected, atomized comments in a sequence in the classroom, what I want them to actually do is stick with an idea and develop it and respond to each other. I have to show them how that works by doing things like, if you and I were having a, a discussion with a group of other people, we would hope, I would hopefully say something like, oh, that's an interesting point, John, I appreciate that, but I saw that I, I interpreted that slightly differently. Mm. And so the next phase in habits of discussion is giving students sentence starters. Like, uh, there's another piece of evidence I'd like to examine, or I interpreted that differently, or even starting with a quick summary. I agree with John's point that I summarize what you said to show that I listened carefully to it, but I disagree. Uh, and so maybe you even put these sentence starters on the wall and have students practice them so that over time they build habits of responding to each other in constructive ways that make decision that make discussions cohesive you're really teaching them how to listen to and respond to one another as opposed to just impulsively saying what they wanted to say because if everyone's doing that it, it's not a discussion you can see how so that the, becomes the, a, the, a jump off point you know at the start it becomes quite uh, unnatural but i guess over time that becomes more and more natural to the students and they might create their own sentence starters and but you what you're saying is you're getting in the habit of mind of at least doing those processes Sure, and you don't, I know, and because you can doesn't mean you must. Are there times when you could uh, allow a student to respond uh, without, without, without sentence starters and without uh, showing that they're listening to the person who's speaking before them? Are there times when students might not always have to track? Of course, you know, because you can does not mean you must. Mm. But I think you want to build these default systems that socialize students what a, what a discussion is. If you do it and you build these default systems, over time and it becomes a habit for students and they understand why they're doing it, then ironically you get to manage it less over time mm. uh, because students understand it uh, and it have internalized it and have started to adapt it wisely to the situations they face in the classroom. So you know, it doesn't have to become um, can be used with with, uh, with flexibility over time. I think it becomes kind of invisible to students. I've, I've certainly seen classrooms become, you know, sort of too draconian about it and say, you always have to use a sentence starter. You don't always have to use it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the idea is we want to build the habits of building off each other and listening to each other and showing that we're listening to each other. And I want to teach students how to do that. The, the definition of discipline is teaching students the right way to do something. Many, many, many. I won't say. I don't want to. I want to hesitate to say most, but most class. Many, many classrooms that I go into, what I see for a discussion, is not a discussion. Mm. It's an argument, or it's a series of. In allowed, where there's very you know once you've said your piece. There isn't really an expectation that you're going to 
listen and learn from others, and that to me is that's the purpose of a discussion. Does that extend into the, the one of the other routines I've seen where um, any student in the uh, classroom can be uh, singled out to answer a question? Um, I've forgotten the name of the routine, which is bad of me. But sure. it's, ca- it's called cold call. And cold call, so, yes. I think, I, think um, I know you didn't mean this way, but singled out is interesting because I think people sometimes see it that way, but I see this as a very positive routine. Mm. Cold call is the idea that any student can be called on to answer a question at any time. One of the fundamental characteristics of most classrooms in the U.S. and the U.K. is that the students get to decide when they wish to participate and when they don't, because they either raise their hands or they don't. And so some students can decide, I'm not going to not going to participate today. I'm not going to participate this week. I'm not going to participate this month. Uh, and so the idea of cold call is that uh, every once in a while I say, so let's go back to the causes of the civil war. What did we say, what were some of the, what did you think were one of the most important causes for the conflict between the North and South? John, what do you remember? What what was most compelling to you? Right. And so that's, I don't wait for you to raise your hand. I call on you with the expectation that you will be ready to be involved and want to be involved in a real discussion in the classroom. And the result is that you're hopefully sort of locked in and prepared because you know that it's a viable possibility that you could be asked your opinion at any time. Mm -hmm. It's also incredibly important because my main job as a teacher, one of the sort of four themes of, of teaching that I write about in Teach Like a Champion, is this idea of check for understanding, which is the hardest task of teaching is knowing the difference between I taught it and they learned it. And so I know that I stood up in front of the classroom yesterday and talked about the causes of the American Civil War for an hour, but that doesn't mean that they learned it, right? And so I have to be able to tell how much they know. If I rely on the students who raised their hands, tell me what they, what they know about the causes of the American Civil War, I will always get a distorted picture of what happened. It will always be more, I will always think that the data is better than it is because students who raise their hand tend to, they're raising their hands because they think they know. And so I need to be able to call on anyone in the class at any time to say, yes, but then what did Lincoln say uh, after, after South Carolina seceded? David, right? So now I know well, what David knows and what he doesn't, as opposed to relying on the two or three kids who raised their hand to tell me how Lincoln responded. So I think it's critical from that, from that perspective. But I think that this idea of cold call, um, it's an incredibly inclusive technique in that if you do it positively and warmly in a way that you, you know, I really care what you think, it's a way of involving students who oftentimes want to be involved but hesitate to be involved for many reasons. I mean, if you think about it, what are all the reasons why students might have something to say in the classroom, but not raise their hands, or even secretly want to be called on, but not raise their hands, right? They could be slightly unsure of their idea, right? Which sometimes is the best idea I want someone to share. And you can see that sometimes students will look at the teacher at the moment of like, I'm thinking about something, but I'm not quite ready to raise my hand. Sometimes we want to hear from that student. Sometimes a student will be They'll be afraid to speak. They don't speak much aloud in class. They're worried. They have, you know, uh, they're worried that they won't say it right. They're worried that they have English is not their first language, and they're worried that they that they have an accent. You know, so those students don't feel capable of participating as fully as other students. And the only way to get better at it is to practice it uh, and be successful at it. There are also students who don't raise their hands because they think, well, maybe I'm raising my hand too often, or maybe the other lads in the class will think that I, you know. I mean, this was me in middle school. Um, I was desperately worried about what the other, you know, the other kids in class thought of me, and I didn't want to be thought of as nerdy. And so there were lots of times where I had something that 
to say in class when I simply wouldn't raise my hand because I wanted the other 13-year-old boys in the class to think that I was cool. Side note, this didn't work. They clearly did not think I was cool. <laughs> but th th this, is, this is what's going on. And so in some ways, it would have been a gift to me to have a teacher say, what do you, what do you think about this, Mr. Love? Right? And then I would have had to yeah, yeah. And uh, it would have, you know, I would have had to engage intellectually, even though I was trying to hide intellectually. So um, yes, it's a routine cold call. It's powerful, and I think done in the in the hands of the best teachers with a smile and a real sort of culture of inclusivity. I think it can be a really positive, powerful thing in the classroom. You can see now, like now you've explained those routines, you can you can begin to see why that. Um stereotyping of some of these routines as being uh, draconian behavior techniques are actually mm -hmm. wrong and how there are learning techniques do you think there needs to be a a clearer markation in education between what is a a system of uh, learning routine and what but what is a behavior routine are they the same thing is there mm -hmm. you know are we talking about control in some senses and uh, yeah. in others democracy democratizing the classroom slightly Yeah, I think this is um, it's one of those frustrating parts of, of my work, which is I think that uh, when you have in routines in a classroom, when you have a right way of doing something, when you have an orderly, productive classroom that is not disruptive by the least engaged student in the classroom, you have an opportunity to learn and an opportunity for intellectualism. Uh, I was in a school yesterday in another city in the United States where there were no routines, and there was no expectation for how things should look. And it was an inner city school with 90 something percent of its kids growing up in poverty. And not one kid learned one thing all day long. Mm. And um, oftentimes, the people who are opining most about the evil of order in the classroom, who say, oh, this is about making kids line up and behave. No. It's about building learning environments. So A, everyone gets the fullest right to learn, but particularly kids who grow up in, uh, in places where schooling is hardest and where the cost is highest to the chronic outcome of non-viable learning, non learning environments. Um, teachers desperately need to be able to, you can't have academics without strong culture expectations and strong habits. Certainly in many places, I would argue people say this all the time, oh, you advocate these techniques for other people's kids, would you want them for your own kids? Yes, of course I would. <laughs> um, I, I see how much time is wasted in their classrooms and uh, what the cost is to them. And by the way, I cold called my, my youngest daughter at dinner last night because my older kids were chatting away about whatever was interesting to them and I saw her kind of feeling uninvolved in the conversation. And I said, well, so tell me about what you, you know, tell me, what do you think, Willa, right? Which is like, just goes to show you that this is something you do because you want to include someone in conversation. So I think that your, your question is a really good one, which is the purpose of behavioral cultural routines is to set the table for academic learning. You can't have a meal without a table to put it on. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of schools where there is no, that table is not set. And where students lose their right to an education because the teacher doesn't know how to or has been socialized to think that you shouldn't tell students to sit down and tell them when it's appropriate to talk and when it's not appropriate to talk or shout out or to laugh at someone or to mock them. 
um, that it is the obligation of the adults to do those things so that the students can learn. And most often, honestly, it is people who have grown up on the winning side of the castes of society, who've grown up in privilege, who don't understand what schools look like uh, for children who aren't born to that privilege, who are the first to criticize structure and expectation in the classroom. But I do think that one of the things that people understand least about the work is that when you have structure, you have freedom. Mm -hmm. That um, many of the best classrooms that I try to describe and profile, if you walked into them tomorrow, you would see a teacher sitting with a group of students in the corner. They'd be reading a book. And a group of other students would be sitting at their desk. They would be reading a story and writing about it entirely on their own without any apparent active oversight from the teacher. They would be self-managing and self-monitoring. And the reason those teachers can do that is because they've taught their students the routine for doing that, right? Mm. When I'm working with this group, you'll go to your desk, you'll take out your book and your folder, and uh, you'll have 30 minutes. You'll work quietly reading your story. Let's practice that. Great. After you're done reading your story, you'll take out your packet. Where's your packet? Find it. Great. Let's practice taking that out. And you'll write. You'll write complete sentences, and you'll try and write your response to the story. Let's practice that, right? So that's a that's an academic routine it's a, it's a combination of an i mean this is really your point which i think is a great point it's a combination of an academic and behavioral routine right mm -hmm. this is how we walk to our desk this is how we take out our things this is the expectation that we do not talk when we're working silently because everyone is working silently but it's also an academic routine here's how i mark up the text to make notes in the margin as i'm reading here's what it looks like to write a response to a text and so when i've done that then i can give students the freedom and say um, go do your independent work when my own children were very young, we lived in we lived in Boston, and we lived in a neighborhood where there were a lot of very busy cross streets. And my son had a little bike that he wanted to he loved to ride, and so it was only when he learned out of habit to respond to our, our voice commands, pause there, that we could let him ride off ahead of us. If he hadn't learned the routine of like when when mom or dad say stop or pause you stop or pause and you do it every time then we couldn't let him ride off ahead of us because there would be the danger that he would ride out in the street or someone would be pulling out of a driveway across the pavement you know uh, as he was just riding and so when we had built in that structure we were allowed to give him the freedom to ride and i think there's an analogy in the classroom when students know what to do they know how to do it right and frankly they know they're accountable for doing it right then you can give them the freedom to work independently and autonomously. I think that that's what you would see in a lot of the most, uh, in the classrooms that are most dedicated to some of the ideas in the book. I think that's where, I guess, I couldn't, uh, my final question, I guess, and I couldn't let you go without discussing it, is where we get to reading. And what interests me about how you talk about reading is this empowering, uh, freeing process. It's not just about accessing curriculum or accessing society through literacy it's it's the sort of conduit to so much else um you've written for us on on the topic a couple of times as well i mean where do you think reading tuition goes uh wrong or perhaps awry in in schools and where are you trying to get them to on, on reading i think maybe two things that i'll uh, highlight the first one is that i think that reading is in the midst of a battle for survival. Its biggest enemy is in, uh, it's probably in, it's in most of your listeners, it's within five feet of most of your listeners right now, it's the cell phone. Mm. Uh, and, 
every time a student today sits down to read a book, there's a shiny device with bells and whistles that says to them, John, guess what's happening right now? John, guess what Caleb's doing right now? John, guess what's happening with Master United right now? John, guess what? That seeks to distract them constantly and can channel any piece of information to them. Mm. And reading has to compete with that. One of the ways that I think we have begun to set ourselves up to lose that battle is that we've let reading become a, become a solipsistic exercise. Teachers don't read aloud in class to students or with students anymore, very much. And I think that one of the ways that you build a culture of loving reading is by a first teacher reading aloud, breathing life into the text Showing, you know, bringing the story to life and then letting students participate in that and feeling the joy of reading a text expressively and with meaning and laughing at the funny parts together and seeing other students do that and saying, ah, oh, mm -hmm, look around me. Everyone in this class uh, is enjoying this text and reads it aloud with vigor and relish and laughs at, at the funny parts. And so I think one of the ways that, you know, stories started as shared cultural phenomena mm -hmm. long before they were even written down as texts. Uh, and one of the ways that I think we keep the literacy tradition alive in our classrooms is by reading aloud to and with students. I think that's not something that happens much anymore. I think it happens in many, it doesn't happen much anymore because in many cases people don't even believe that we should be reading a shared text as a class. You should get to read your own text. In a, you know, either you, know, you choose your book and, answer, and write whatever you want to about it. Um, or we're all, you know, we're all working in small groups. I guess but, it's something we sort of fall fall out with, and you know, in every early years yeah. classroom, you have the carpet time, and and the teacher will read the book. But I guess that that whole communal reading experience perhaps gets less and less as you progress through school, particularly in secondary. Yeah, interesting. I think that's right, and I think that's probably when it's most when students start to wonder whether reading is still relevant to them. Is in some ways the most important time to continue reading with them. Mm. Um, and one other thing that I think is just a, a real issue with reading is I think that we have come to believe that reading is the is a set of skill that reading is a, is a set of skills that um, first of all that reading is uh, the act of answering and asking and answering questions about a text and it can be any text uh, and I do think that the text matters deeply uh, I, I just I wonder about classrooms, this is more of a problem in the United States than in the UK, but uh, I want to compare the narrative structure of the book that I'm reading to some other book that everyone else has read. Mm. In the United States, there is no, there's almost no book that I can presume that everyone, every student in my class has read, and so I can make it an intertext. I can, I can talk about the similarities and differences of texts. And so I don't, I don't think that, I think that the choice of what we read is, is vastly underrated by many schools and teachers. And then I think many schools and teachers perceive reading to be a set of skills, uh, have to practice making inferences about the text. If students can't make an inference, it's because they don't understand that an inference is making a connection between what's written in the text and what uh, and the background knowledge that I know. And I, I think that um, most in 90 some, you know, in the great majority of cases where students don't make an inference, it's not because they don't understand what an inference is. In the same way that when students can't draw the main idea of a text. It's not because they don't know what it means to draw the main idea. It's because they don't understand uh, the background knowledge. They don't have enough background knowledge to access the text. 
they don't understand the context of what it's about, they don't know the vocabulary in it, or um, they have not experienced complex text enough by reading it aloud to be able to process it with enough active working memory left over to be able to think more deeply about the text. So I think we often think that reading problems are skill problems when they are knowledge problems. Maybe I'll just give you a tiny example, uh, if you'll forgive me. I was reading with my littlest daughter a couple of weeks ago. We were reading this, this book, Little House on the Prairie, which is a sort of uh, iconic series of books about uh, the American West in the late 1800s. And so the main character's mother comes to her and says, it's Wednesday night, and she says, we're going to town, take a bath. Uh, and this is supposed to signal to you that something very major is going to happen. And so I asked my, uh, my, my daughter, um, how do you know that, you know, how do you know that this is a special event, that something very special is going to happen in town? And she was guessing all sorts of things, but she, she didn't know. Mm. And she's, she, she's quite a good reader. The reason she didn't know is because she doesn't know the fact that in the American, that in the 19th century in the American West, you took a bath on Saturday only to be ready for church on Sunday because water was expensive and you had to bring it up from the well and you had to heat it. So, you know, people took baths once a week at best. And so taking a bath on a Wednesday night was a, was a very unusual event. She could practice making inferences a thousand times from a thousand different books and it wouldn't make her any better at making that inference. Yeah. That inference is, is about knowledge. And I think generally we systematically underestimate the importance of knowledge in education. When I write Teach Like a Champion 3.0, there's going to be a whole section on, on knowledge. I think we've come to believe the false argument that in the age of Google, when you can quote look anything up on Google, that knowledge doesn't matter anymore. Knowledge is different from information. <laughs> you actually need knowledge to be able to process information, and not and the lack of systematic background knowledge um, is one of the biggest it's one of the biggest causes of reading problems. And so instead of in fact, we would help students more if we ask knowledge-based questions about the text instead of always asking skill-based skill-based questions because we would build their knowledge over time and probably make them better readers. I think that that's one of the reasons why we struggle to make progress with students as we conceive of reading as a set of formalistic skills. I think that the research is pretty clear that that's not the case. There's a great example of this, of a, of a teacher really building a culture of valorizing and loving reading with their students. That, uh, I'll send it to you. It's, uh, it's uh, Maggie Johnson. She's reading To Kill a Mockingbird aloud with her eighth grader. So they're 14-year-olds, but you can just see the way she builds their understanding for how the, the understanding for the voice of the text but also their appreciation of reading it's a really beautiful video and so you've got teach like a champion free coming up what next year is it <laughs> yeah definitely not next year i <laughs> talked about that briefly on, on another podcast and there were all sorts of uh notes from people saying i hear you've got a new book coming out so it's a long way <laughs> i have notes in the uh, table of contents of my my copies it's a good start, right? And it's uh, <laughs> several years away for sure, right? And um, I guess w with this podcast, um, we will put the links to the videos Doug's mentioned uh, so far uh, in, in this podcast, and we'll put them in the notes and in the, the test news story as well. Um, so I'd just like to say thank you very much for joining me today, Doug. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you as usual. Thanks for having me on. Really Thanks.